You're listening to the Fear-Free Childbirth Podcast with me, Alexia Leachman. Let me help you to take the fear out of pregnancy, birth and beyond with a mix of real-life stories and experts sharing their wisdom. I'll also be sharing psychology insights to help you to cultivate a fearless mindset. Be inspired and be empowered with Fear-Free Childbirth. And now it's time for the show. Hello and welcome back to the Fear-Free Childbirth Podcast. My name is Alexia Leachman. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, on today's show, I'm going to be diving into the topic of solo parenting and being a working mother. I'm going to be joined by Steph, and Steph used to be the managing director of a creative agency in the UK when she decided she wanted to embark on a solo parenting journey. Now, I was really interested to understand how her pregnancy was and what that meant for a birth experience, knowing this is going to be a solo journey. She agreed to come on the show, and our conversation goes way beyond that. Her daughter is now a toddler that runs about the place and needs quite a lot of care, obviously, like most toddlers. We discuss what it's like to be a working mother with a young child that's not yet at school, but also what that's meant for her professional life. For many of us, when we become mothers, it does put into question a lot of the stuff that we do for our work and whether we can maintain the full-time job that we had before, whether that's something that we want to continue doing. But of course, when you're facing the solo parenting journey, that adds a whole new dimension to thinking all of that. And so this is what we're going to be exploring today. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Fear Free Childbirth podcast. Hello. Lovely to speak to you. I know. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation because, well, we've known each other for quite a long time. And we tried to figure out this at the beginning, but I, I, don't, I don't know. Let's just say it's over 10 years. Yes. <laughs> And in that time, you've had a a stratospheric marketing career. And more recently, you've become a mama to a little girl. And I've observed you from, you know, all the socials, seeing your life unfold uh, as a solo mama. And so I really wanted to get you on the show to talk about your experience of solo parenting and what that's been like for you so that we can get a, a new perspective on the show to hear how being a solo parent, how that works, how it feels, what the struggles are and all of that. So how about we dive into sort of the beginning of the story for you? It actually started quite out of context. I was in my late 20s and I was feeling a bit funny. So I went to the doctors. I was like, not quite feeling myself. They did a couple of blood tests, went for a couple of scans. And accidentally, I discovered that I had a brain tumour. And it was low grade, benign. And I was kind of kept on kind of regular scans and things like that. But they just said to me, if you experience any other kind of major symptoms, they might be things like seizures. But that was kind of like the the kind of like initial starting point for where this story goes. So that was 2009, I think. And then hit about 2014. So about five years on, I had a first seizure. And then I had two more six months later. That meant technically I was now epileptic. With epilepsy, my neurologist turned around to me and said are you thinking of having children and I was like well I'm kind of how am I now early 30s well yeah it would be quite nice but um he's like well don't he's like it's it's a risk to you and it's a risk to your child so you're probably going to miscarry or worse still you could die yourself wow yeah so I was like right wasn't expecting to have that conversation wasn't it was completely there's something that kind of like shook me and Mm. I had to kind of take a step back and just absorb everything that was going on and and so for the next couple of years I just I I basically grieved parenthood and I sat there and was like well what can I do about this don't know so I threw myself into my career 
I'd already been kind of traveling quite a lot because with a brain tumor, although it was nine and it was safe, I didn't know like when that was going to change or if that was going to change. So I kind of been off traveling and doing my thing. And I got a letter through the post. I love the NHS do. I do love the NHS, but they're terrible with their timings on things. Letter came through from the uh, epilepsy specialist saying, oh, you've got an appointment. So I was like, oh, okay, interesting. And he did all the routine kind of, how are you feeling? Have you had any symptoms? Have you had any seizures? Are you taking medication? Oh, yes, yes, yeah, all fine, good, good. And he said, have you got any questions? And I said, well, actually, yes. I was, like, I was told a few years ago that I could not or should not have a child and myself because I have, a, have all these risks. I could die, I could miscarry, whatever. And he just looked at me and was like, no. He's like, I don't know who told you that, but you have just as good a chance as any to kind of like to become pregnant, to have a safe pregnancy. You're on the lowest dose of medication. So what are you waiting for? And I was like, are you sure? Like, you know, really? Like what's going on here? And by this time I'm 37. So this journey started at 29. We're nearly 10 years on. I'm still single. <laughs> That's a bit of a practical <laughs> issue. Um, but also, you know, like, my mother was in early menopause so you know what where do I sit on this spectrum what do I do decided to get a bit of an MOT I went to a fertility clinic and kind of like went through all the motions of getting tested and all that and my uh my summary that came out of it was you have a womb of a 25 year old (laughs) pretty kicking I was like you know when you get your Fitbit and you see and it says oh actually you're this 25 year old that's not bad and then the woman turned around to me and went, if I was you, I'd just go out on Friday night and see what happens. It's like, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, thanks. But the 25-year-old thing basically said to me, you, you don't have to rush. Like, you're 37, but just kind of, like, take your time. And so I did, and I waited a little bit longer. Basically, I'd gone up and done, I became a yoga teacher in the meantime. I was doing that as a side hustle. I was running the um, the agency, communications agency. You were running like MD of a, a communications agency and you had a side <laughs> hustle. Like. <laughs> I literally would fill all my time because I was just like, oh, I don't have a relationship. I've got this. I'm just like, what can I do? So I was always doing something. But I think also it was a, it was a big distraction because the more I filled my time, the less like I could think about stuff I did come to some kind of realization that something needed to shift because I went and sought out a life coach and I had a good chat with her one of the first things you'll laugh because we just talked about vision boarding but I went the first thing she uh she got me to do was a vision board and I had all sorts of things on there like travel and work and love and all that kind of thing but right in the middle was this big baby picture she's like talk to me about that bit and that basically made me kind of go back and go right okay I need to start doing this what do I need to do like I need to think about the practical side of things, the financial side of things, the work implications, the yeah. can I physically do this, emotionally do this. I kickstarted my journey. I started looking for donors and kind of getting everything moving and finding the right clinics and things like that. And your vision board, it had a baby on it. It didn't have a couple or a family. Is that right? You 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 made that call. Yeah, there was, there's one, I mean, I, I posted about this on Instagram recently and someone like laughed at me because, you know, some people look at the pictures and some people don't. And she just, she'd zoomed in and she's like, hot Spanish guy, lol. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> there was a guy, like that would be nice. But the baby was much bigger. And yeah, right. I was just like, it's the, by the time I kind of found somebody, got into a relationship, done everything, I am 
notor- notoriously single. Like I've always been single. Like I've dated here and there, but just nothing's ever really stuck. And that, how do you rush into a relationship in your late thirties and go, "Hi, I'm Steph. You look really nice." Uh, yeah, exactly. Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> and I was, you know, all the time I was still kind of in the back of my mind, like maybe things will change. You know, you don't know, but like I have to go with Plan A and then see what else happened. And you know, my my Plan B was always if I if it didn't work out, I'd look to adopt. I'd had this big focus that I was like, well, if my mum could raise three kids on her own and yeah, I didn't do the greatest of jobs of it, but I turned out right. Then I'm sure I can do it. Just talk me through some of that that thinking that you had as you were kind of contemplating this as a route for you. The first big thing was, can I physically do it? That was the the major major one. There, you can't see on the inside of your body, and so there is this kind of like, if I put all all my eggs in my one basket, is am I going to come out of this emotionally okay and like emotionally stable? I was quite convinced that I would, but I think it was just pure uh, grit and determination around that side of thing. From the financial side, I was like, well, I'm in a good job, so that's fine, and I'll just come back after, you know, I've uh, had the baby, and I'll, I'll have to be practical about that because, you know, it's only going to be one income, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Other women do it. Bit of a blind spot, if I'm totally honest. But, again, I think I had to kind of put the the green lights on as many things as possible because if I didn't, I would have backed away from it. And then from the practical side of things that, you know, I was living in a one bedroom flat. I'm still living in a one bedroom flat with a two year old. But I was like, that's fine. I'll just get a bigger place when the time comes. Um, and so there were a lot of, it was, there was lots of planning, but it was also lots of, let's work that out when we get to that bit, because it might not even happen. How did, what were the practical things? What, what did that look like then practically? I went to a fertility clinic. And they do a series of tests to kind of like check all sorts of things functionally around your body. So things like checking that your tubes are clear, there's no blockages, making sure that your hormone levels are are as they should be, all that kind of jazz. And then you basically go in, you take bloods, uh, you check your ovulation, like make sure you, you know, like you're, yeah, everything's kind of like working as it should be. And you have like a whole process at the start of it, which is like a full MOT in that sense. And then when it comes around to actually kind of like going through the process, like choosing which method that you use is really quite important. For me, even though I was told I had a room of a 25-year-old, like just a few years before, they do a test called, called AMH to check your levels, which is an indicator of how many eggs that you might have left. Depending on which clinic you go to, they've got different scales. But the one, the major one that I was um, on was 0 to 30 was the score. 30 was like, you are prime. And zero was like, yeah, fat chance. My AMH levels were 0.3. Oh, my word. Yeah. So whether my womb was 25 years old, my eggs were certainly not. So there was a high risk there of kind of like obviously not conceiving. You you take take your chances and see see what's going on. But my complication on top of that is I have high prolactin levels, which is what triggered me to discover the fact that I had the brain tumor all those years before. In order to conceive, I needed to uh, take medication to kind of like bring my hormone levels down. But IVF was off the cards because were they to extract the eggs from me, they just likely they could do that and they'd all be gone. And I wouldn't have a chance. I'd have one shot and that would be it. They recommended me a process called IUI, which is in utero insemination. But straight up, like if you're talking to a guy, the easiest way to describe it is like a cow. Um, 
turkey baster, you know, but it means you don't have to have all the injections and the hormones and all those kind of things. So it's literally a case of tracking your bloods, tracking your ovulation. Like as soon as you kind of hit that button, you go in and you have the procedure. And then it's a watch and wait. Obviously, you'll get the natural indicator if it doesn't work. But uh, if they think it might, you you can't take, they, they advise you not to take a test for the first sort of like two and a half weeks just to kind of be 100% sure. I didn't have the greatest experience in the first clinic, but the second one, oh, incredible doctor, got a network of people that I know who've been to him who've had success, which is really, really good. Put my trust in him. I was like, let's see how this goes. And I did one round just before lockdown, unsuccessful. Went in for another round in the August and my womb lining wasn't thick enough. So I had to abandon. And then the last one, I'd already kind of primed myself with the idea of kind of like going into adoption. But that one was the successful one. From a practical level stuff, yeah. So I went down the IUI route. But also there's picking the donor, which is like... I talked about that, yeah. <laughs> in my head, I'm probably way off base here. Was it like a catalogue with loads of pictures or was it? It's all online, all online. Yes. So it is like a catalogue with lots of pictures, but it's kind of like a super advanced version of a dating app, except they're all child pictures. So that sounds really dark and twisted when I say that out loud. But basically <laughs> the donors will offer up on many of the profiles pictures of themselves when they're children or babies. So you can get an indicator of their features and things like that. So it's like a... Yeah, database of everything to do then their their age, their height, their weight, their health, their family health, any conditions they might have, uh, their features, their interests. They do a personality test. Sometimes they do voice notes. So it's quite a minefield when you start going in. If there's anybody listening that is thinking about kind of like going down this route as well, one of the big pieces of advice that I had was to check and see if those donors have already had pregnancies. Because obviously that's a high indicator of success. They might be more more likely to be able to conceive using that donor. And even down to things like other other bits of advice that I can't give you kind of a solid evidence behind, but things like don't pick people who look like you because actually sometimes nature fights against that. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're looking kind of like to like a picture perfect, it's like, well, there's too many of that already. So like we don't want to make any more of that. But again, that, that's a hypothetical. Did you get to see their grades, like whether or not they were smart? You get to see kind of like an idea, like so uh, like their kind of academic history, um, their interests, they do like a little questionnaire around them, things like that. So that I actually used three different donors over the like over my kind of like time. First one, I was kind of dead set on. I can't remember too many details about him now. But I was like, yeah, 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 he sounds cool. Second one, I was like, that'll do because I just I was in a hurry to kind of get it done and I was on a on the clock as it were and then the last one I was really really over considered and I'm really pleased I was because that was the one that was successful but I things that were big factors for me were making sure that whoever the donor was their heritage had to be something that I could teach my daughter about later like um making sure that I like I wasn't going for somebody who was purely from Vietnam or America or Scotland or wherever, if I didn't know enough about the, 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 the history of that place or enough to be able to share with them, I didn't want to kind of like deny them part of their culture. And actually the person I chose has mixed heritage to the degree that they, my daughter has eight different parts of her kind of like thing. So from um, 
from Puerto Rican to Korean to Scottish to that, which is a real mixed bag, which is lovely because I didn't know what she was going to look like when she came out because I've got mixed heritage too in in the kind of like a, a tiny way. My grandfather is from Centalina and so his father is from Africa. And so we've got kind of mixed genetics in my family. My brother's very dark. I'm very fair. I didn't know what, what was going to come out of that, but I've got loads of places I can take her to travel now. Do you know who he is or is there anonymity there? So you, there's an option to say whether you're an open, uh, you're open to being contacted. And then um, at the, kind of, I think it's 18, my daughter can contact the agency and say, I'd like to be in touch with my donor dad. And he can do the same. And if they both request, then they will be able to be put in touch. Okay. So it's uh, it's not kind of like tomorrow I can go and contact him and he's kind of given up rights by kind of making his donation. He's not technically her father as a dad figure, but he is by biologically her father. When you found out you were pregnant, like, you know, how was how was that pregnancy experience for you? OK, so I I remember coming home from the clinic, having done the insemination and getting on the phone to my friends and yeah, it's all good. It went ahead this time. And she went, oh, my God, you're pregnant. And I went, no. That's not how it works. <laughs> There's still a bit of work to be done here. It was only about less than a week after I had had it done. I literally sat down and went, I I need red onion now. And I ran to Waitrose, dropped everything I was doing at work, just ran to Waitrose, chopped up a raw red onion, threw it in a plain baguette and just ate the whole thing. And I was like, I, I think I might be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, that's like, I'm sure cravings are supposed to come later. But it was obviously this surge of something within me that like, that needed it. So I did a, I did a pregnancy, pregnancy test a couple of days later. And it was so, so faint. And then I did one every single day until the day I was told I was actually allowed to do it. I was very vocal as soon as it happened, because I wanted to kind of tell the world and shout from the rooftops, even though people say, you mustn't, you've got to wait. But I was like, I just want to embrace it. Because if I, in my head... I wanted to manifest that this would be a positive pregnancy. The first trimester was really exhausting. I had a few things with like sense of smell and stuff like that that went a bit funny, but I was really lucky I didn't have nausea or anything like that. I just really struggled. Like some days it would be nine o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I have to sign off work. I was like, I'm sorry, I cannot keep my eyes open. So really, really draining. But I was pregnant at 39. I turned 40 when I was about 16 weeks pregnant. Okay. And so in the NHS system, suddenly everything changes and suddenly you're a high risk and suddenly you're the risk, like your geriatric mom yeah. and you like you have to take aspirin and you have to do this. And all of a sudden, all these extra kind of dates and schedules have to be put in. Generally, I was pretty healthy through my pregnancy. The, I think the only real major struggle I had was a bit of pelvic girdle pain, which kind of knocked me for six. I couldn't stand up off the chair quick enough. <laughs> yeah, that's so painful. I couldn't walk to the toilet. It was awful. It was horrible. Yeah. I had people like buzzing at the flat door and I'm like, I can't get to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm staying right here. But that's it. I'm just thinking like that pregnancy experience. I mean, you're on your own, you're living on your own. So when I was in my first trimester, I was exhausted. I kept going back to bed. I was like, I've got no energy. I can't get out of bed. And people had to bring me bananas in bed so I could eat them in bed, get the energy and then leave the bed. But you're on your own. So already this solo journey is beginning. I mean, how are you feeling going through all of this thinking, well, there's no one, there's no one there for me to 
to get me a banana and that was my thing the banana but do you know what I mean how, how was that for you this is a really good point and it's a really interesting one because two things were going on here so one like I said I've been eternally single like I've, I live far away from family like I, I'm always somebody who's just got on with stuff on my own like even I remember a friend saying to me once oh so who's picking you up from the airport when you get back from x trip and I why is someone going to pick me up from the airport so it just it wouldn't it wouldn't occur to me. I'd just get home. Like I'd, I'd already got there, so I'd just get home again. Um, I've just always done things by myself. The second thing is, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Pregnant in October, by December we were back in lockdown again. So I was just at home doing my thing. Like he just he that's that's just how it was. Yeah. So yeah, if 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 I was tired or I had to get if I had to go to a, a hospital appointment, it's actually quite nice because the tubes were really quiet. So you could go and do all those things. And there were lots of rule changes happening as well at the time around having somebody accompany you to appointments. So obviously I didn't have a a partner to take with me to them, but all the rule changes happened just a little bit behind where I was in my stage of my pregnancy. So I remember taking a friend with me to my 20 week scan, which is obviously pretty major because I was like, actually, if there's anything, this would be really nice to have someone there just in case there's not great news and she got sent away because she wasn't my partner and because there wasn't enough waiting room space to have an extra person in there that that was the only time I kind of got thrown a little bit because I've had my hope that actually I would have someone with me but otherwise I just got on with it and I had another friend who requested to be my birth partner which was nice and she kind of like did the NCT classes with me from she was living in Dublin at the time so she did that remotely with me as well so I had a bit of support there it all kind of went pretty well until I think it was probably about 32 weeks. And then I had a scan to check on the size of the baby and they freaked me out because they were like, oh, she's too small. She's not growing. Like I was just like, oh, what, what does that mean? Oh, well, I can't really talk about that here. And it's that fear of suddenly going like, what is wrong? Like, is the placenta not feeding the baby? Is there a complication? Is it because I'm old? What have I done? The guilt, like, I'm like, what, what's happening here? I spoke to someone else two days later and she was just like, I hate it when they do that in that scan room. They always do that and they freak people out. She's fine. She's a bit on the small side, but she's fine. (laughs) I'm mad for you. You come across as somebody that's just like super gung-ho. I'm just going to sort this out. I'm going to like take on the world and I'm just going to do it. And I'm not scared of anything. And so I'm I'm kind of thinking, and so correct me if I'm wrong, you know, that that you're looking at the birth, look at the birth thing and this is fine. I'm just going to nail this because I nail everything else, this is going to be totally fine. Is that how you felt about birth? I mean, I was a little bit nervous, but I think because my mum was late with her, um, like with me, and then I think most of us, we we were pretty kind of like late going. I was like, I've got time. Like, I've got time to kind of worry worry about this if I need to. Then also, because I was, I was my age, they, were, they offered me induction. And I was like, oh, okay, I can plan for that. I'm in control of the date that this baby arrives. Obviously, then kind of like understanding what induction meant and versus what kind of like the reality of that was a little bit more kind of anxious. As the kind of like scans went on to check on my daughter, because we knew she was small, the kind of like option of induction was kind of like, no, this is this is pretty definitive. We need to make sure she's she's out by 39 weeks. That got brought forward by a week. And it was only complicating to me of my life because I decided to take on a mini MBA before baby came. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, it's fine. It'll be finished a week or two just before that I go and do my induction. So I know when the baby's coming. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, week 38, I'm sat there. I've gone in. I've tidied up my house up the best I could, get everything ready. 
and I'm sitting there typing on my laptop, finishing my last project for <laughs> and then yeah, and then I kind of I had I think I think it was the third attempt of induction. I told them no. Basically, I had two that I started and had to stop because overnight, because of my epilepsy, they wouldn't allow you to continue with something in case something happened and there weren't enough people around to deal with it. So I did one, didn't work. Second one, I did the balloon, um, which was really not fun and quite uncomfortable, but it triggered contractions. Um, And so I was like, okay, this is it. It's working. But then they stopped. And so we had to stop that again. And then the third one, they came in and like, right, we're going to do epidural. And I was just like, I, I'm not going to have an epidural because I want to be in control of a situation. Like I don't, I don't like feeling out of control. That stresses me out. I don't want to push too soon or, you know, do whatever. And so I was like, I am really sorry. I've been in there three days. I, I really want a cesarean. And they were just like, well, it's really risk, you know, risky and blah, blah, blah. And they went through the whole thing. I was like, I just, I, he was telling me I shouldn't be stressed out. This what would not stress me out is to have this procedure, to have the baby here. The baby's not going to be stressed. I'm not going to be stressed. And my friend chipped in and went, you heard what she said, get it done. And they went, okay, have you eaten anything? And I went, I've had two slices of pineapple. They're like, okay, we need to wait six hours. It was the best decision I made. It literally, it was most calm a way to bring her into the world. And I had a, the whole Lion King, King experience, which for anybody who doesn't know is, You've got this sheet up in front of you, so you can't see what's going on at the other end. And then they lift the baby up into the air and kind of present her to you. <laughs> they were like, do you want the liking? I was like, I don't know what you mean. And then they like, oh, Brilliant. And she came out and she was really healthy. She wasn't as small as they thought she was going to be. She was seven, four, I think. It was a harder recovery because, again, you come home, you're on your own. You've got to kind of wiggle around and, and do everything. Being in control. <laughs> I think a lot of people will look at me and go, you don't really know what labour was like, do you? I don't. I don't know what labour was like. I know what it was like to birth a child, but I don't know what labour was like because I never experienced it. Do I regret that? No. <laughs> I know that sounds awful, but I, I made the best decision that for me. I can't believe people would say that to you. Though. Like it just, everyone's journey is unique and you've got to do the right thing for you. And and so what if you've not experienced that that part of the experience, you know? When was she born then? What what week was she, did you end up having that cesarean? So she was born 13th of June. Um, So it was just before Freedom Day in the UK. So everybody was just coming out of lockdown, uh, like officially in that summer and celebrating, which was fine for them to go and party. But it was brilliant for me because it meant that people could come and see her. Whereas if I'd have had her sooner, then if we were still in lockdown, it would have been much more more tricky to kind of do that. And so, yeah, it was really hot uh, outside. And obviously the hospitals are always really hot anyway. So it was melting. I think about the journey that you've, you've been on already, taking her in your arms for the first time. I mean, just what was that like? Um, it was amazing. I mean, they put me on, they put her on my chest. And kind of, I'm just looking at her and just smiling. And my friends like caught these beautiful pictures of us encountering each other for the first time. Yeah. And she's just like, "Why aren't you crying?" I was like, "Because I feel like I've known her my entire life." I was like, "It's not like I'm meeting someone new. It's and I'm so happy, but it's not. It's not a kind of an emotional release or an overwhelm. I think because I wasn't exhausted, and so that didn't kind of like trigger lots of emotions like to come up because." If I'm perfectly honest, I say I am a crier. 
So I think everyone was really blown away by the fact I was just so calm. This is it. She's here. And then she just slid down my chest and I couldn't control it because I'd had an epidural self-deception. And I was like, can somebody, can somebody help me? She's strangling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she obviously went away to kind of be cleaned up and everything. And then um, I got taken off to my room and the uh, one of the kind of nurses came around. She's like, oh, he's so beautiful, isn't he? And I was like, she. He's like, yeah, yeah, he is. He's really gorgeous. She's so proud. I went, she. She just looked at me and went, I filled the paperwork in wrong. I'm so sorry, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> I think she'd been so tired on her shift. I'm like, I'm so glad you came and talked to me because otherwise I'd have had all sorts of admin problems. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> but because I'd had, I had to have an me- extra dose of medication to prevent seizure during birth, I had to stay in for a few extra days. So the C-section plus that, it meant I was in the hospital for about five days. And then we came home and yeah, and then just kind of just got on with things for the first week. We had the health visitor check and then we had to go back into hospital. So I thought I was going in just for a very quick kind of like once over, make sure she was okay. Um, her bilirubin levels were really low and I had been breastfeeding, but actually there'd been no milk. And so she'd lost 20% of her body weight and um, had to go under blue light for a couple of days. So I felt absolutely awful because I was just like, I thought she was fine. I thought babies just slept because they were tired and that's what they did. But she was sleeping an awful lot more because she was so hungry. So I had about six, six, seven weeks of mixed formula and breastfeeding. And I almost gave up. I was just like, okay, we're just, that's just going to be it. We'll just, we'll just do formula and, and so be it. And then it kicked in and she started refusing the formula. She's 25 months now and still breastfeeding. Um, it is getting less. <laughs> It was never where I expected to be. It's lovely in the sense that there's that connection and I can soothe her and, you know, she's comfortable with it. And I'm, to, to the most part, I am comfortable with it as well. It makes me uncomfortable when people aren't. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, but after that, she was fine. So um, that was the only kind of a hiccup. Going through the first few months as a new mother, you know, on your own. And I know that you don't know any difference, so it's difficult for you to compare, but I'm just wondering, what was those first few months like navigating this? Mine were like, you know, it's like, what is she meant to do that? Do I need to feed? Like, you know, you, you don't know what the hell is going on and just about to talk that through with somebody and go, well, I don't know, and you take it. And also just sharing yeah. responsibilities from getting like sleep. I mean, how did you kind of manage that? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I just did. She's very good. Well, obviously, once she got better as well, she is a very good sleeper. So I've always been very lucky with that. But newborn, those first few months, obviously they don't. They sleep every every couple of hours. They need a feed or they need changing or something like that. Yeah. I think the biggest piece of advice that I give other people around this, whether they're solo or otherwise, when they're having children, because of my experience, is not to have expectations. Mm. I think there's a very big layer of pressure and guilt that we put upon ourselves to immediately bounce back or be this kind of like perfect super mum or dad. And to make sure that the baby's fitting in with the lifestyle that we had before. For me, it was just like, well, if I need to be awake at this time, I need to be awake at this time. And if I need to sleep at this time, I will sleep at this time. And if she pooped, we just change, we just get on with it. Like all of those things. There were times where she would cry and I would get very tired and, and emotional as well. But I think it's really strange because it feels like a sense of coming home, becoming a mum, in the sense that there are all these instincts that kicked in in me. 
and I've been around kids a lot like growing up and things like that so there's not things weren't entirely alien from that perspective that said I've never changed the nappy until I had her which is bizarre because I've been around so many kids my mum was a childminder like <laughs> insane but I think the biggest challenges were more the practical stuff outside of the actual mothering it was more things like the admin and the paperwork and being turned away when I was trying to get her birth registered because I was two minutes late even though I dragged myself out six weeks after having a c-section had to walk half an hour down a road to be able to get to the place I needed to and so it burst into tears because I was like I can't believe you've just done that so all of the kind of like the challenges and things that kind of happened I had my NCT group and we had a little whatsapp that would go and we'd kind of like check in with each other but I think generally I was I was pretty lucky and and like I say because I didn't have these expectations around anything and because I'm so accustomed to just having to get on with things I think the challenges came more when I started to go back to work and I thought I was doing everything that I possibly could and everything was kind of back to normal and I realized I was it was much more of a challenge than I was seeing yeah so I think yeah the mothering for me is something that feels the most normal thing in the world Mm. but now the navigating kind of everything how the world looks as a mother is very strange and that's the bit that I think I found the hardest out of all of this yeah let's talk about that bit and also and also just from the work perspective you know the position that you held at the time was a managing director of a comms agency a very successful I just keep remembering seeing you winning yet another award on <laughs> you know like you're really going doing really well and so you know coming from that to then having maternity leave, like how long did you take off work at that point? What were you What were you planning to take off in terms of maternity leave? Yeah, so I'd always kind of like plans on taking roughly about six months. Okay. There's a couple of things that kind of fall into that. There is the financial aspect yeah. because you have maternity pay and then you go on to the tiny little amount that you get from the government, which is, is difficult to kind of manage. And also kind of like thinking about future as well. There's the kind of, emotional connection with people as well when you're doing things on your own and you're home alone and you're just with a baby that doesn't really talk back at that stage actually having people to talk to is really nice yeah and then like reclaiming that sense of self as well and proving I think I think proving is probably a really interesting word actually proving to others that you are still capable even though it's only been a space of a few months is that there's an immediate reaction you know from whether it be peers or clients or whoever of like oh you know are you going to be okay with this you know if you've got baby brain all those kind of like terms and things like that that come through uh, there was a need in me to make sure that people knew that I was still there I hadn't gone away and I was still present and also just making sure I was still integrated within a business that I was supposed to be running mm. I mean isn't it interesting how people suddenly jump to these conclusions the minute you've birthed a human you've just created a whole human being and birthed it why am I now no longer capable of doing all the things I was doing before? Yeah. You know, it just seems to be what a leap that people make. And I, I think even parents probably make that leap. Where, where does that come from, do you think? Have you had any thoughts about Have you got theories on what, why people behave in this way or think this? Yeah, I think if I'm totally honest, there are definitely, your brain is filled up with a whole bunch of new responsibilities. You have a second and a third job. Like you've got to be the person you were before the person who is a mother, the person you are that's convincing everybody that everything is normal. And so when your brain is at capacity, you do work at a slower pace. You're not as fast as you were before. Like, and, and I have to be honest and admit that. 
but equally I'm not broken mm. and I think because everyone assumes you don't get any sleep therefore you're always tired or you're not as available as you were so I went from working full-time but working significant hours over the full time because that's just I didn't again I didn't have anything else when my yoga was stopped (laughs) and my side hustle was gone so I had extra hours so yeah you you kind of like find that you're finding your kind of way through all of that it's it's a challenge the workplace I mean when I was in the workplace doing jobs in inverted commas as opposed to working for myself I just saw from where I was sitting there, it just seemed like mothers. And it, it, I don't know why it was just mothers. The dads didn't seem to sort of, you know, get this as much at all. But the mothers just have a really hard time. You know, even those are on part-time contracts that, that are kind of perfectly entitled to leave at three because that's what their contract says. They just get all the eye rolls around the office. Like, oh, can't organise a meeting at four because you won't be there. You know, like, like being really rude, actually. Yeah. And there's almost like a permission to treat people that are doing you know, working parents that want that level of flexibility with disrespect or the fact that they can't do the work in the time that they have. Yeah. Did you find this kind of, I mean, you know, I feel that maybe that's a long time that I was in the workplace. I would have hoped that things have moved on slightly, but, you know, I know that there's some big campaigns around flexibility in the workplace and working parents. I don't know, like, what was it like for you? Did you experience some of that? It's tricky because you're kind of like going from those kind of like extended hours to then kind of like a tiny amount. So I went back one day a week for the first couple of months, then two to two and a half, three to three and a half. I built it up. But also I was juggling a whole new way of working. So we were all hybrid. And so for me, that also meant I didn't have to commute. We were working flexi so I could kind of work different hours around things. So I have become very adept at working on my mobile phone. So if my daughter napped, I would be there and I would do it. Even yesterday I was doing it. She's, you know, like I say, she's two. She was laying across my lap asleep. I'm kind of there on one phone writing notes on my mobile phone, typing on the left hand, like sending things on email. You just, you work around those kind of things. But also sometimes she appears on screen because the meetings are not moved and you can't kind of like, you have to still participate. So I'd be on mute and then I kind of jump back on again. Or I'd be bouncing her to kind of get her to sleep while I'm on a call and put my, my laptop on top of the cat tree. And then your cat would walk over and the tail would swoosh on the top. And you'd have all these kind of funny scenarios. But I won't name them because they're, you know, they're, they're clients. But some very big global clients congratulating me on the way that I was working and commending me on the fact that I had the courage to do it. And it was really, really nice to hear that because they had children themselves. Like one of them actually brought her daughter on and was like, look, look, come and see the baby. But it was just kind of like trying to work out that some things couldn't be moved, but I still need to participate in some things could be moved. But actually attitudes around not just me as the mum, even like sometimes just other people who are working part time for different reasons. Mm. You do get that kind of resentment that like you're not there. So somebody else is just going to have to pick that up. And it's it's something that really needs to shift and change in the workplace. And I know for women, especially in, in a time where more women are becoming leaders and there's more of a push to become a female leader and we're all kind of, you know, championing these young girls. I talk about um, the fact that we're the Spice Girl generation. You know, I grew up in the 90s. You know, everyone's like, girl power, you can do this. But no one said to you, oh, by the way, when you have a baby, everything's going to change. And if you work from home and you're a stay-at-home mom, you're going to have a future that basically looks like your financials are going to drop, your prospects are going to drop, the way you're going to have to work is going to change. You're always going to have these school hours ahead of you. Like that is just not something that's kind of like pushed out there. And it's something that I didn't even think about. And naively, as it might have been, I thought I could do it all. And, and even with childcare, 
then I took the big decision and went, you know what, I need to focus on doing something where I can still be that marketeer, that person who's doing their job. I can still kind of have control over the way I work and how I work without kind of anybody kind of making judgments innocently or otherwise around how I work and what I do so that I can take that guilt and pressure off of myself. Mm -hmm. And it's been a real relief. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be perfect this first year because it is going to be a challenge, you know, financially and kind of getting things up and running. But at the same time, I'm getting to spend more time with my daughter than, than ever. I'm, I feel more myself and more like, you know, I'm coming back to being me and also being able to be me. So my daughter sees that, Yeah, you know, but regardless of clients or otherwise, I would, what, I'd, what I hated at one point was the fact that I would be picking her up from nursery and I just want to sleep or be, I'd be tired. And I'm like, I'm not giving her the person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, like, how can you live a life without compromise? And I was like, it's all about perspective choosing to say you compromise or choosing to optimize your life to get the things that you want out of things two very similar and different things yeah but in your head if you're saying well I can't do this anymore because of that and you say I can do this anymore because I've changed this that's where you can kind of then focus psychologically on kind of having that that way of being and and relieve yourself of all those pressures that you've put on yourself yeah First thing I want to say is I just commend you as well, just to have put another, you know, just to sort of hug you back and go brilliant as a woman leader doing all of that in the workplace. Because one thing that is very clear, it's, it's you know, if the, the woman at the top, if the women in leadership positions are doing that, make, giving other women permission to do that too in the workplace, because it means that those other women working in that company are going to think, I can do that. That's okay. I can bring my child onto Zoom. I can, that's okay. I can balance this. It, it shows that you can do it and acting as a role model. So that, that's just brilliant. And what impact that's going to have on those women in that workplace, even though you're no longer there. Yeah. The ripple effect, you've dropped that pebble in this pond now and that's been done and they now know that they can do that. So just acknowledge <laughs> that in yourself, you know, because I think it's really important that women in those positions do kind of take that on. The other thing as you're talking as well, I recently moved from the UK to France. And one thing that's really striking to me is when I had two toddlers juggling with the school pickup nursery you know just dealing with all of that and work it's impossible to have a full-time job and pick up your kids from school I mean there's just that they just don't work because mm-hmm. school finishes at three or half three or you're dropping them up at nine I mean so there's no way that you can do a nine to five and that's if you work just nine to five and you and I I mean the, the industry that I was in which is marketing as well nine to five is a joke you don't do that it's way more than that right so the idea of being able to yeah to have a child at school and have a full-time job they're just mutually exclusive it doesn't work somebody's got to give up somebody's there's got to be compromise made somewhere even getting back for nursery hours was a challenge yeah and now I've come to France I'm dropping off my kids at 20 past eight at school I'm picking them up at five every school we've moved around France three times since we came here Every school had a what they call a galerie, which is like childcare available to every parent for one euro a day, where you can leave your kids there. Wow! Till half seven, and I could drop her off at seven if I wanted, and leave her there till seven half seven. And so if I'm running late, I'm caught in traffic, whatever it is, someone's there, which means everybody can just go back to work and have that life. And there's loads of really adequate, yeah, good, well-priced childcare for the times when you're not working, whereas nursery in the UK was just, your salary basically goes on nursery. You either, yeah. somebody's got to give up their job, haven't they? Yeah. And so the pay isn't set up for parents. And when I come to France, I see it, it's like, wow, they really are 
supporting that. And so I think that really does lend itself to being able to cope as a parent. And I'm just seeing the differences now. And I think, God, if I'd had that in the UK, I probably would have stayed in the workplace and not set up a business, whatever it is. Whereas as I chose to leave the workplace, because I could see that on the horizon, that's exactly what what you've done in the workplace and losing brilliant women because they're not supporting them in being mothers. Yeah. Because mothers are just, when I think about what you're achieving, like your level of productivity and efficiency and ability to multitask is off the scale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, doing an MBA, let's just quickly get that MBA and before giving birth. Workplaces need that kind of thing, right? They need that. And then they're just letting them go, letting women go like you go. And I just think it's a tragedy. Yeah. So I have to go on the soapbox. No, 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 no. It's a, it is it's a big issue in the industry, like especially in marketing and comms. And there's a new organization called PR Mums that set up a new site which is dedicated to recruitment and getting women back into the space because male leaders are recognizing it as much as female leaders, you know, that they're losing their top talent. Mm. And so like how can they kind of make sure they're supporting people? So there's lots of kind of things like pregnant men screwed in the UK is like you know, big movement to kind of helping working mums and doing different things there's the big flex appeal campaign that's been launched recently and changed the miscarriage kind of like laws that are changing as well thanks to mining class there's lots of big big things that are going on right now that are unbelievable and having spoken to friends at the weekend whose kids are just starting secondary school now it would have been completely different for me like I I had to become a stay-at-home mom I had to do these things like the world is changing for the better but it's still in its infancy to a very large degree and so there's, there is a lot of work to be done. You know, at the moment, like, I have the blessing of being able to kind of like, if you say, work, social media is 24-7. So seven in the morning, six in the morning, if I'm up early, I can get in there and like be DMing the influencers and asking for their stuff. And they're online because they're posting their content. And it's great. And I'm like, oh, hello. Yeah, we can have a chat now. That's fine. So actually, there are a lot of benefits to being able to work flexibly. And I think the respect for that it will only come from somebody who is in that experience. Mm. And I think the other point going back to the workplace stuff as well is just because I became a parent and my world shifted and changed and I chose to work in a different way and I had to put boundaries in place. It was something that I recognized quite quickly and I was very keen to impress onto other people who weren't. So people who were like in their early career, 23, 24, 25, and thinking they had to work long hours and thinking they had to do X, Y, and Z and they're responsible for everything I'm like no you're being paid to do this job this is what you need to do we've got flexible working hours if you want to shift and change and do that fine but you don't need to work overtime you don't need to do this it's perfectly okay but because they didn't have an anchor Mm. to kind of like put in their mind that actually that was the right thing to do it's the thing that also then long-term creates a resentment because I was the person who used to roll their eyes at the person who would go home early to pick up their child I did it oh I did it yeah yeah we don't realize that's the thing we, we don't realize until we become a mother what it's like yeah it's just the biggest mind blown yeah you know the minute you become a mum, the whole world your whole view of everything everything just changes in a way that you can't even imagine before you become a parent and so yeah I'll put my hand up and say I was one of those people too yeah and so how do we change that attitude in the workplace when it is I wouldn't consider myself to be a mean person <laughs> But maybe I was super mean when I was like in my 20s. I don't know. But the way that you change as a mother is just you can't prepare for that. I don't think anybody you could read as many books as you like about it. But yeah, nothing quite prepares you for what happens when you become a mother. What do you think? Yeah, no, totally. And I think it, there's a lot of stuff like just in the kind of career in the workplace that is all about just kind of going like 
24-7, gung-ho, got to keep going, got to keep getting promoted, you've got to keep doing all these things. And so that the moment someone puts the brakes on anywhere, if you look culturally, like you say, like everything is a lot slower paced in France. Like it's a, yeah. <laughs> if people have their boundaries, they do their things. It's like, you don't need to be doing this, but there's this pressure on everybody to kind of like, if you don't get it first, then you're not going to get it at all. The thing that I impress upon myself now, again, is, is things like making sure I'm bringing value to clients. Like not that I'm going to be the fastest or the first or the most innovative or the most this, that and the other. Am I doing the job you need to do? And am I doing it well? Yeah. Because, you know, there is a race to kind of do everything. And again, I think that's half the reason the size, most of our society is going through mental health crises right now. Well, yeah, totally. Yeah. They're so stressed and they're so anxious yeah. and they're living up to these expectations that they keep failing because they're trying to, they're just trying to do too much. Yeah. And it is just about just, just accepting that you don't need to be doing as much. You don't need to be as pushing yourself in the way that you are. When I came to France, it was a real culture. I'm a half French, so I really should not have had the culture shock that I've had. <laughs> the radical pace change that I've had to go through. And yes, I've also moved to a rural location. So I'm not, I'm not in Paris, for example. But it's just been mind-blowing, the kind of the way that the pace changes. And, and also, like, they, they have two-hour lunch breaks. And I think it's only until recently mm-hmm. it's illegal to eat lunch at your desk. <laughs> and we're all like that in place. I mean, in the UK, like, What? I'd have to eat it my desk, but I'd only get five minutes if I was lucky to kind of eat that sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, you come back at 2, 2.30 if you're lucky, you know. And there's a real, they put real boundaries around that to make it, this is an important part of the day. You need a break. You need healthy diet, good food. You need connection, talking, a break, mental break, so you can go back and do. And these are really important things that when you're working hard, you do need a break. Absolutely. Eat well, eat a proper meal, not out of a packet, so that you can function Great. So, yeah, these are really important things. But I think that the UK, the working culture in the UK does miss out. There's a huge missing piece there that I think, I don't say think that France has completely nailed it because they are, there's some bits that quite shock me. <laughs> I think the UK, they're both at these opposite ends of the spectrum. I think they could both learn a little bit off each other, but let's put it that way. You can find a, a balance. I know, but you're selling France to me at the moment. I'm like, I, can I brush up on my French? Because I study French as well. And I lived in Corsica for my Erasmus kind of like semester and yeah the two-hour lunch breaks I remember things like that and but I also remember lots of the I don't know if it happened on mainland France or not but all the lecture halls had ashtrays on the back of the chairs and they're all smoking during their exams Uh, it was quite crazy we think about it but that's 20 years ago but just having the kind of like the focus not on productivity all the time and being extra and extraordinary I read a quote the other day which was all around you know when did ordinary become so passe and out of fashion and you know like it's okay like to be normal and not have like the best fanciest tvs and on our biggest holidays and you know i see a lot of families doing that now they're trying to have these most extravagant experiences for their kids and i'm sure it'll be wonderful and they'll have those great memories but equally the stress and burden of kind of going through those for a solo parent is hard naomi's been on plane probably about eight times since she's been born like little trips Ireland Newcastle things like that like not not massive but I'm not ready to take her on a big trip on my own yet I think that's that's gonna have to wait until she's about four maybe five until she's ready to kind of hold her own uh because I've managed to be able to breastfeed her on the plane take off and things like that get her to sleep I think also these big experiences also kind of almost train kids to expect them as a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. 
around that rather than you know like when I was a kid we were on holidays like well there's your bike outside yeah like no no need to kind of provide entertainment or you know so there's constant kind of giving them things to do it's like you just have to figure this out yeah. and actually that's really valuable experience you know being bored and then coming up with something for you to kind of keep yourself busy or make a den under the tree and get your friends and whatever you know that creativity that kind of self-sufficiency that I'm going to come up with an idea and now make it happen yeah these are essential things that children need to learn and when they constantly get given things or taken on experiences or paid to take them to this and to that they don't learn some of these things and so there's a lot of value in these non-experiences and just leaving them to get to be bored even though sometimes it could be quite hard as a parent I you know in school (laughs) this might not sell the whole French thing the kids have two months off in the summer holidays and so it's like <laughs> as a working woman that's got my own business I'm like this is a nightmare and May is a total write-off so they've got like god knows how many bank holidays in May so you've got June to get a bit of work done so we've got July and August and you're like oh my god yeah they come down going oh I'm bored with me I'm like that's great see ya I'm working you go and figure that out because you need to be able to figure this out yeah because that's where you learn this but that can be hard as a parent to kind of let them and a solo parent yeah a lot of the time I've sat there and I've beat myself up about it and actually like I've done a lot of reading more around the conscious parenting and kind of as you say like letting kids get bored and have that kind of freedom to to kind of be independent because she's a very independent toddler as all good toddlers are feeling like oh there isn't somebody else here that can go that can tag in almost you know you feel like you need to kind of like entertain them all the time and I've and I've had to sit there and go where's she gone she'll tell me if she needs me yeah Whereas before I'd be like, Naomi, Naomi, where are you? Where are you? What's going on? Whereas now I'm kind of like, okay, I did it the other day and, you know, bless her, she decided to scale her pushchair and topple and come straight over the top of it. (laughs) But she has to learn. And this is another thing that people find very strange about me. They're like, why did you let her hurt herself? I was like, I didn't let her hurt herself. She climbed on, she fell off. That's what happens. She doesn't know that when she learns it, she won't do it again. Or she might not do it again. She knows what's going to happen. It's like, yeah. And you have to kind of give them give them that room to feel it and experience it yeah. without kind of endangering their lives. Yeah. But yeah. The difference I noticed between French parenting style and British parenting style, and I didn't realise that I had, because I was raised by a French mother and a French grandmother that was obviously very present. I kind of had that baked within me. And so when I was in the UK, approaching parenting and kind of noticing how my parenting style is very different to the mums that I was that was in my group and, and, and the, you know I, in my head I wouldn't always air this out loud but I'm like that's insane what they're doing yeah <laughs> no wonder this is happening and then I realized that I read the only parenting book I ever read was bringing up Bibi with American woman living in France that's the only one I ever read and she kind of put into black and white the, what that French parenting was I was like oh my goodness this is why this is my attitude because I'm actually doing this the French way without realizing yeah and and it is this laissez-faire it's just letting them make their mistakes, get hurt. That's how you learn. You're just letting them to do that. Whereas I think in what I was seeing among mums that I was around is like not allowing them to do that, like being on top of them, Mm -hmm. protecting them, stopping them from hurting themselves. I mean, as long as they're not playing with that, you know, a a hedge trimmer, then that's fine. Like, you know, they can fall off a pram. It's okay. Exactly. Um, That's my view anyway. And so I'm very much in that. But, you know, I want want my daughters to be independent and resilient and confident. And if I'm constantly over them, micromanaging, and you know this as a manager, as a leader, if you're constantly over your staff, checking their work every five minutes, they just don't feel empowered. They don't feel like they can get Yeah. 
exactly and they'll always just be like oh no you do it then mommy exactly and you know that's they're not going to kind of get there and I, I had a very smothery mother from my school at the age of 14 present my mum with a petition with a hundred signatures to say can Steph play outside the gate please <laughs> uh, literally it was it was quite a controlled environment and so there, there is a kind of like I want to make sure I'm I'm doing things my way which is differently you know giving her the freedom to to grow to explore to try things she doesn't like something she doesn't have to do it mm. she likes something let's do it more you know it's okay but I'm not going to go well I was a ballet dancer so you should be a ballet dancer she likes football better than ballet she can be a footballer I don't care but I just want to make sure that she has the choice and the kind of even down to what clothes she wears to nursery like I'd rather she was comfortable with what she was doing even if she even if comfortable is not knowing what she's chosen because she's seen it in a magazine it's because it feels nice for her to wear yeah and it's she feels proud of the fact that she chose that outfit Mm -hmm. it's those kind of little gestures I would like to think will build up to something that developed an independent confident kind of like yeah but you know young woman rather than going no you will wear these because I bought them or I paid for this or so and so told me that I have to do that yeah there will always be boundaries school uniforms and things like that of course but where she's in this stage at the moment I, mm. I just want her to feel good mm. my family freaked out one time as well when I sent them a video of her on the playground because I let her climb up the stairs to the slide or steps to the slide and she swung and went through the bars and she literally missed her head by a millimeter but bounced straight back up and got back up and walked up with them. And they were like, oh my God, why did you do that? I was like, because the floor's bouncy. It's okay. And again, she just needs to learn. But yeah. she had fun doing it as well. Like, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, brilliant. Well, Steph, we could carry on now and talk about whole parenting. So I'm going to wrap it up now. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming and sharing your journey about being a solo parent. Now, um, you are starting a new podcast, aren't you? Which I love it if you could tell a little bit more about it so I think there'll be loads of my listeners that are going to want to check it out tell us about your new podcast yeah absolutely it's called for the love of kids and it's all around how when you become a parent your center of universe shifts and you are trying to navigate a whole new world and it's not just for parents I'm going to have a lot of people who are parents on there as guests but I've also got people who are not parents and their experiences of what it's like. So whether that might be choosing not to become a parent and seeing others around them or being someone who is in an environment at work, for example, who is experiencing that person coming in and things changing for them. It's all about just seeing it from every side of life and all the challenges and opportunities and fun stories and things like that that come with it. Real passion projects of mine. So hopefully we'll be, it'll be good. Is that on Spotify? Where can people find that? Is that already out? It's on Spotify. First episode's out. It's a bit kind of like monologue first episode, just kind of like explaining how I came to be the mum that I am. And then first guests are kind of like recording at the moment. So brilliant. hopefully they're coming soon. Exciting. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining me on the, on the Fear Free Childbirth podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. You've been listening to the Fear Free Childbirth podcast with me, Alexia Leachman. Fear Free Childbirth is the online destination for women seeking to take the fear out of pregnancy, birth and beyond with fear clearance meditations, self-healing products and courses, professional training and specialist programs for overcoming tocophobia. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then check out the Fear Free Childbirth Mama Ship. It's a bit like Netflix, where you can binge on a boatload more Fear Free Childbirth content to inspire you on the journey to motherhood and beyond. More interviews, more birth stories, more expert wisdom. Visit fearfreechildbirth.com to find out more.